Welcome. Thank you everyone for coming tonight. I hope you have had a good week so far and I hope your rest of the week goes well also. Uh, let's take a moment and just pray and ask the Lord to bless our time of Bible study tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the grace, for the love that you show to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are the sovereign, mighty creator who is uh, watching over everything in your world. And uh, Lord, that is a comfort to us, knowing that uh, you are watching over all things. There's nothing that's outside of your control. And uh, Lord, I pray that tonight, as we come to you in prayer, that you would uh, guide us uh, by your word and by your spirit uh, to pray in harmony with your will. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, you would also help us to be uh, attentive and have our minds and our eyes open tonight to receive your word. And uh, Lord, I pray that this study would be an encouragement to us and, and helping us in our walk with Christ. And Father, we pray this in his name. Amen. Tonight, we're moving into the last section of the book, Created to Draw Near, which is uh, part number three, Almost Truly Human. And kind of what he's doing in this last section, the last several chapters, is he's kind of bringing us back uh, full circle. And so he wants to come back around uh, to the Garden of Eden and to remind us that um, how things started with uh, the original creation of God, with perfect harmony between his image bearers and God and perfect harmony with one another, that that is the end result of everything of the, the direction that we're heading in God redeeming us and also in redeeming creation, that one day there will be a new world, a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth in which is only peace, only love, only harmony. And, and we completely fulfill this, uh, this harmony and fellowship for which God made us. And that's why he's uh, calling it um, completely, almost truly human. Uh, tonight, we're looking at uh, chapter 30 of Created to Draw Near, which is the uh, topic of priests in plain clothes. And he talks about how now that we are New Testament priests, that uh, we go about our lives, our normal lives, and we uh, are not dressed like the priests of the Old Testament, but in fact, we are priests. And we relate to God as priests. He begins the chapter by saying, Today's priests wear ordinary clothes. They work in ordinary jobs and are hard to single out. They are subject to the same losses and hardships as the rest of the world. And so we're like normal, everyday looking priests. We go through the same hardships, the difficulties that everyone goes through. And the opening of the chapter talks about how we are a needy people. And as priests, we depend upon the Lord for his strength. And so we are needy. In Psalm 40, verse 17, the psalmist says, But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. And I was thinking about how in the Psalms, that is a common theme 
that you see in the Psalms, and especially in the Psalms of Lament, that they were dependent upon God. They needed God. They cried out to God for help. And I think sometimes with all of our technology that sometimes fails us, but all of the advantages and the things that are available to us now, we sometimes we can become too self-dependent and we become too confident in our own abilities and our own resources. And we need to stop and we need to reflect on how fragile it really all is and how much we really do need God every day of our lives, not just when things are going wrong, but every day we're dependent upon him for everything. And so we as New Testament believers, uh, we are a needy people. And when you read the New Testament, you see the kinds of people that the New Testament describes. And they were certainly not um, the, the notable people of the world. You know, by t- even by, by their standards back then in the ancient world, and certainly not by today's standards, they weren't famous, they weren't powerful, they weren't politicians, they weren't famous entertainers, they weren't wealthy. In fact, most of them had a lot of problems. They went through a lot of difficulties. And so you read a lot about sick people in the New Testament. Most of the people that Jesus interacted with had needs. You read about people who were outcasts of society, whether it be you know lepers, uh, sinners of society who were on the outside, on the fringe, even Christ's disciples and followers later on after his death and resurrection, they're outside, they're outsiders, they're, they're being persecuted. And so they're, they're by no means the most powerful, respected in society. They were a needy people and so are we. And one of the things about being needy is that it has this capacity to draw us and pull us closer to God. And as much as we don't like to go through trials, as much as we don't like to go through difficulties and to feel this sense of neediness and weakness, those are the moments when we draw near to God, aren't they? That's when we depend upon God. And and so God brings those things, those, those difficulties into our lives because he wants us near. And even though those things are hard and difficult in the moment, um, they are being used by God to draw us close and to make us mature. Christians, James says in James chapter one. And so our neediness has a way of drawing us near to God. And so priests are needy, but also priests are characterized by faith. They believe, they trust God. We are consecrated to God by believing in Jesus. At the moment of our faith, at the moment of our regeneration, we are set apart unto God. We belong to him. And that's really the idea of holiness or of consecration is something that is set apart as special, as belonging to God. And so we're consecrated, set apart as holy to God through our faith in Jesus. And our eyes are opened to believe in a Messiah that was rejected by most of his people. Think about that. The the, the man that we are putting our our lives into his hands, the, the man that we are trusting with our lives in all of eternity 
is someone that was of no reputation in his day. He was someone that most of his people, his own people, rejected. As John says in John chapter 1, he came into his own and his own did not receive him. They rejected him. And so, but through the spirit, through the power of God, through his grace, our eyes are opened to see that this humble, weak, meek servant in Jesus is the savior and the Lord. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. And that can only come by way of the spirit's work to open our eyes to that. But we trust in a weak, a humble, a servant Messiah who now has been exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus came in weakness, not strength. He came in humility, not in wealth or nobility. He came to serve, not to be served. That's what he said, isn't it? I did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Paul talks about in Philippians 2 that Jesus humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. And so Jesus came in weakness and humility in service. He says in the chapter, Jesus might not be what we expected, but he is what we hope for. His humility and gentleness attract children, misfits, the unwashed, and those with immoral pasts. Praise be to God that he accepts people like that. Because that's us. We are all of us people of immoral pasts, aren't we? We're all sinners. We're all those in need of grace and forgiveness and redemption. And those are the people that Jesus came to save and to rescue. Abundant life follows in his path. Sins are forgiven. Sicknesses are healed. Death is pushed back. And so Jesus came to walk among us, among the needy, the broken, the weak of society. And through him, we can be healed and have eternal life. Our eyes are open to believe in a humble, poor, rejected Messiah when we see our own need and unworthiness and trust that only he can rescue us. In a sense, it's when we see ourselves as needy and as broken and as weak, that's when we identify with the meek and lowly Messiah who came to give himself for us. And that humility of opening our eyes to see that, that we are broken and that we need a savior that comes by the grace of God. And we trust that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one who can rescue us. And so we have now through Christ, the democratization of the priesthood. It's kind of a big word, but it basically means giving the priesthood to the people, right? And so, whereas in the Old Testament, the priesthood was entrusted to Israel, to this one nation specially called out by God, and then even within Israel, to the tribe of Levi, and then to the family of Aaron. There was, it was kind of narrowed down, wasn't it? But now in Christ, all who are in Christ are blessed with this role of being a priest under God. It's kind of giving the priesthood back to all of the people. And so now in Christ, the priesthood has been democratized and redistributed to us all. So we are all now a royal priesthood 
under God. Our daily lives as God's priests might seem rather ordinary, but we are in union with Christ, the risen Lord, and are indwelt by the eternal Holy Spirit that God has drawn near to us. Looking at our lives from the outside, they look normal, ordinary, boring maybe even. But every day of our lives, we are in union, in harmony, in fellowship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, with the creator of the universe. Every day of our lives, we are living with God in us. God, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And so really, in a sense, nothing we do is ordinary. Going to the store and buying groceries, you're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Doing your job, you're doing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Raising a family, you're doing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Really, everything that we do in Christ with the Spirit, none of it's ordinary. It is all something that God has called us to do. And so we are blessed. And so we are priests in everyday clothes. And then chapter 31 talks about priests descending and ascending, kind of tying it back to that story of Jacob. Remember that vision that he saw of the angels of God descending and ascending on that ladder in that vision that he saw back in Genesis. And so he's connecting us to that story as well as to the story of the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Right now, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Jesus is in heaven, right? He's at the right hand of the throne of God. But we have the spirit in us. One of the questions that we could have is how can we really draw near to Jesus when he is so far away? In a physical sense, Jesus is not with us anymore, is he? He's ascended to heaven. So that seems far away. How can we really be near to God when Jesus is so far away? Well, the answer is in the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said, if I don't go away, then the Father will not send you the Holy Spirit. It is necessary for me to go to ascend back to my Father so that I can gift you, grant you the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus left to go to heaven, but he didn't leave us alone, did he? He gave us the indwelling spirit. He says, because of Jesus, we have the spirit. And because of the spirit, we have Jesus. To have one is to have the other. And so he gives us Romans 5, 5 in the chapter that Paul says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit is the means by which we have the love of God on our lives. I don't know if you remember this, uh, the study that we went through of um, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And that book, Knowing God, we, there was a chapter on the Holy Spirit. And I still remember the two main things that he said in that chapter when we think about the Holy Spirit. He said, without the Holy Spirit, we would have no Bible. And without the Holy Spirit, there would not be a Christian on earth. 
And I thought about that in this context where in Romans 5, 5, Paul says that God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. If it were not for the Holy Spirit, we would not be saved. If it were not for the Holy Spirit, we would not be children of God. We would not experience the love of God that we have now without the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying. And so it was by no means a downgrade at all when Jesus left and sent us the Spirit, was it? Yes, we may not have Jesus, the man, the God-man physically with us, but we have God still with us, don't we? In the person of the Holy Spirit. And so he says the Spirit brings us into God in such a way that we participate in his plans. Everything that we have is in Christ and through the Spirit who dwells in us. And so he says in the chapter that God sending the Spirit to us when Christ ascended, it's not a stopgap measure. It's not a stopgap measure or a downgrade, having the indwelling Spirit rather than the physical presence of Christ. And he reminds us in the chapter that really what God has blessed us with in having the indwelling Spirit is what Christ had when he lived his whole life in ministry on earth. The Spirit descended on Christ, didn't he, at his baptism. And, and throughout the Gospels, you see many, many places where it says that Jesus did this in the Spirit. Or uh, he, even Paul says, was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus' whole life and ministry was in union and in harmony with the work of the Holy Spirit in him and through him. So when Jesus left and gave us the Holy Spirit, he's essentially giving us the anointing like he received when he was baptized. Obviously, he's the son of God. And so we're not necessarily doing everything the same way that Jesus did, but he's blessed us with this gift of the Holy Spirit abiding with us. And so Jesus' whole ministry was accomplished in harmony with his anointing with the Holy Spirit. He says, Jesus himself experienced unity with the Father by the Spirit. His miracles were by the Spirit. His resurrection was by the Spirit. And he also reminds us in the chapter that the Spirit's presence will continue with us into heaven and eternity. So this isn't like just a temporary measure. God says, I'm giving you the Spirit. That Spirit will be with us forever on through into and through eternity. And so the spirit is the one who brings us into the father and the son by the spirit. Jesus binds himself to us, including in his death. And so it is by the spirit, the indwelling spirit that we unite to Christ and to God and that Jesus death and resurrection is for us. We are united to him in that. Paul says in Galatians 2:20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, ask yourself a question, Galatians 2:20. Paul says, the life that I live now, I live because Christ lives in me. 
how can Christ live inside of another person? Through the Spirit, right? Christ, as the God-man, is physically not here. He is at the right hand of the Father. So then how can Christ dwell in us, as Paul says? How can Christ live in us? It's by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit connects us to Christ. And he says, I live now by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so he says, in this death, the death of Christ, and our being united to that death in Christ, you have been freed from all claims that were rightly against you. The demands of justice in the heavenly court have been fully met, and sin, death, and Satan have lost their power. And so now we have what Paul refers to in Romans as a new life in the spirit. We have a new life in the spirit. And that means that we have freedom from guilt and condemnation. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. New life in the spirit means freedom from the power of sin and death. Paul says in Romans 6, that because of what Christ has done for us and now through the spirit, we are no longer slaves to sin. Now we are slaves to God for righteousness. So we're free from the power of sin over us. Through the spirit, we have victory over death through resurrection. Do you know that it's the power of the Holy Spirit that will raise us from the dead? We will have new life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That's a passage on resurrection, isn't it? Because Jesus has raised from the dead, we too one day will be raised from the dead. Paul says in Romans 6, 5, if we have been united with him that is in Christ, in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And he says right before that in Romans 6, 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It's the power of the Spirit who raised up Christ It's the power of the Spirit who will raise us up. In the here and now, it is the power of the Spirit who grants us a new life, a new walk, a new beginning in Christ. And so we have a new life of fellowship with Jesus by the Spirit. The Spirit has made us His dwelling while Jesus prepares a dwelling for us. I never really thought about that before I read that in this chapter. Jesus said in John 14, verse two to his disciples, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And where I'm going, you cannot go with me now, but I will return. And when I return, I will call you to be with me where I am. And so Jesus went away to prepare a place for us, to prepare a dwelling, a home. And in the meantime, he gave us the spirit to come and dwell in us. We become the Spirit's dwelling while Jesus is making a dwelling for us in heaven. And then toward the end of the chapter, he says that now in the Spirit, 
We are following in the steps of Jesus in his descent, that is, in his humility. And so following Jesus' lead, we descend in humility and service to others through the strength of the Spirit. Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus humbled himself and he came to give himself for others. He came to give his life for others. And Paul says in in Philippians 2, this mindset, this attitude that Christ had should be ours as well. That we should not look to our own interests, but to the interests of others, that we should be willing to, to serve others and look to their needs. And that descent is hard, isn't it? When we descend and follow in the footsteps of Christ and humble ourselves like he showed us to do when he took that towel and wrapped it around his waist and washed his disciples' feet, when we follow Jesus' footsteps in service like that, it can be hard. There are times when service is hard, but we know that it follows Jesus' lead and is done with him and that his spirit is with us to give more life and power then we can find comfort and even fuller life in it. So Jesus fully gave himself to humility and service. And in so doing, fulfilled the father's mission, fulfilled the father's purpose. And no doubt, though it was hard and painful and difficult, Jesus received joy, didn't he? He received joy through his living out the Father's mission, even in the midst of serving one another. And we too can find fulfillment and joy in it. And so weakness is the way to draw near to God. I mentioned it before, back when we were talking about chapter 30, but he kind of expands on that here now at the end of chapter 31. Weakness is the way to draw near to God. Our weakness magnifies God's strength. Remember when Paul had a thorn in the flesh? Paul had this difficulty that he was dealing with and he prayed, God, if it be your will, take this thorn in the flesh, this difficulty away from me. Three times he says, I prayed and three times God said no. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul said, I welcome that then. I welcome my weakness so that God's power, that God's strength may rest upon me. So we draw near to God through our weakness and that weakness magnifies God's strength. Our weakness reveals our dependence and then our dependence drives us where? To God, doesn't it? And so it draws us near to God. And like Christ, our weakness will one day give way to exaltation. Philippians 2, Paul says, Christ humbled himself, made himself a servant, submitted himself even to the death of the cross. But now God has highly exalted him, hasn't he? And given him a name that is above every name. Well, the path that God has laid out for us as Jesus' disciples is the same path. Jesus, in his humiliation and exaltation, achieved eternal life for us. We're not doing that for ourselves. Christ already did that for us. 
But now in our lives of discipleship and service, we're following, though, in that same path of humility followed by glory. And so that now we are giving ourselves to others, we're serving others, we're humbling others, we're putting other people's needs before our own. But in the end, we will be glorified, won't we? We will be exalted. What does the Bible say in James? The one who humbles himself will be exalted. But the one who exalts himself, he'll be abased. He will be humbled. And so when we follow in Christ's path of service, then we too will be exalted. It's just as Jesus told his disciples, the first among you shall be your servant. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. And so Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, to be sure he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, Yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. And so Paul shows that our pattern is really the same pattern of Christ, that Christ was in weakness when he died, but then he was raised in power. We too are weak, but we will receive the power of Christ and be exalted. And so there is strength in weakness, dependence on God in weakness, this is life close to Jesus Christ. And Paul welcomed it. He says in Philippians 3, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Do you remember that context of Philippians 3? He says, If someone has reason to boast and to brag about their accomplishments, I have more. And he goes on and he lists all his accomplishments. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee in regards to the law. I was blameless in terms of my zeal. I was persecuting the church. Basically, he says, I was the best of the best in terms of Pharisaism and Judaism and following in the ways of his ancestors. Paul says, I was the best. But now all of those accolades, all the future that was laid out before me, the path that I could have followed and risen to prominence, he says, I consider that all nothing. It's all garbage in comparison to knowing Christ. He wants to draw near, doesn't he? He wants to draw near. He wants to be near Christ and to know Christ. And for that, he welcomes difficulties. He says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I think essentially what Paul is saying in Philippians 3, 10 through 11 is he wants to follow the same path that Jesus followed in Philippians 2. Jesus humbled himself and went through suffering, but then raised from the dead. Paul says, I want to do that same thing because I want to be close to Christ. I want to know Christ. So I want to go through, even if it means suffering, even if it means persecution, even if it means dying for the sake of the gospel, in my faith in Jesus Christ, I want to know what it is to be close to Christ because he knows that that is the pathway to resurrection and to glory. Just like Jesus, that was his pathway, humiliation, service, but then ultimately resurrection and glory. Paul says, I want, I want that same path for me, suffering and service so that I may also have resurrection and glory. 
And so he ends the chapter with this statement. He says, the life of God's priests on earth is full of reminders that we are expatriates who live at the bottom of the ladder, but are citizens of heaven. It's a good reminder for us, isn't it? Especially in times like I think we may be experiencing in the not near, not too distant future. Christians, especially evangelical Bible-believing Christians who still trust the Bible and believe what it says about certain aspects of morality and of God's order of things in the world, we're no long, we no longer have the power in society. We're no longer the dominant voice. Now we are the voice of the minority. Now we're the voice, we're increasingly becoming the voice of the fringe. We're becoming marginalized. The Christian voice is becoming marginalized and pushed out to the edges. And it won't be long before then it's persecuted. More openly, more directly. And so we need to remind ourselves that ultimately our citizenship, our place of belonging is not here. It's in heaven, isn't it? We're expatriates. We're pilgrims just passing through. Our citizenship is really in heaven. So life is full of daily hardships and deaths leftovers. Yet it is also marked by life and love. Love from God, love for God, and love toward God's people. And where there is love, expect joy. So we're normal, everyday priests in plain clothing. Yet nevertheless, we're still priests of the Most High God. And Jesus is not here, but God is with us in the Holy Spirit. And so every day that we live as a priest of God, we may essentially be in the Holy of Holies because the Holy Spirit is with us. And every day of our lives, we may approach God's throne of grace to find help in time of need, can't we? Because Jesus has opened the way for us and has invited us into the priesthood. So we are priests now and we walk in the spirit, seeking to live in harmony with Christ and following in his path that he laid out for us, service and then glory. And so may we follow in those footsteps. I pray that this is encouraging and helpful to us and a reminder to us that even though our lives seem ordinary, really they're not. In the grand eternal scheme of things, Our lives are not ordinary at all because we are children of the most high God on our way to the celestial city, on our way to eternity. Let's bow in prayer together. Father in heaven, thank you for the love, for the grace that you've shown to us. Thank you, Father, that uh, we have the opportunity to just listen to your word tonight, to think about these truths and to be reminded of the great privilege that we have to be called children of the loving God. And Lord, to be reminded that we have the Holy Spirit with us and in us every day of our lives as believers, as your people. So Lord, help us as your priests to draw near to you. And then Father, help us to bear bear witness for you and represent you before the world. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.